Welcome to Curva Mundial. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Curva Mundial. I am your host, Sal Bono, and today my next guest is a kindred spirit and someone whose work I admired for years now, and lucky enough to call him a friend. He is a scholar on African soccer and African history, and the author of the books La Duma and the History of South African Soccer. Please welcome to the show, Michigan State professor, Juventus supporter, and lover of great pizza, Peter Aleggi. Ciao, Sal. Thanks for having me on the show. It's great to be here. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for doing this. I know your schedule is absolutely crammed, and I know that the school season has just ended, So, and there's no stopping for you. So I really appreciate this, you finding some time for me. Pleasure, pleasure. Always good to talk football and especially calcio. <laughs> you know, you are someone, as I said in the intro, who, whose work has truly spoken to me on many levels. Um, as an Italian-American, you love calcio, but you're also intrigued and inspired by Africa and a fan of African soccer. You've covered South African soccer extensively. And when I was on my honeymoon in 2020, before the pandemic officially took over the world, um, your book I brought on along on my honeymoon. So you were part of it, a part of my journey uh, in South Africa with my wife and I. So um, for you, how did all of this come about? First of all, that's awesome. That's the, the best story I've, I've ever heard about <laughs> reading my book. That's great. Hopefully uh, you'll have a long and successful marriage as a result. Um, <laughs> thank you, thank you. But I, I was born and grew up in Rome, Italy. My father's American of Italian background and my mom's Italian from Rome. And so you can say that I was born with the football virus, but it hasn't been bad for my health. I like to think. Uh, so, you know, like all Italian boys, pretty much when you are growing up, soccer is in the air we breathe. Uh, whether it's at school, you're talking about soccer with your friends and then playing uh, the game on the playgrounds and then going to matches if you're fortunate enough. You know, it, it becomes an integral part of who we are, how we interact, how we see each other, how we relate to each other and so on. And I was lucky to go to uh, my first game that I remember uh, starring my favorite team, Juventus, way back in 1976. And I've often been asked, why are you a Juve fan if you're from Rome? Oh, you, that was my next question right here. And, you know, I understand that there are people out there who think that, you know, this has to do with uh, some nefarious uh, bandwagoning or something like that. But the story in my family went as follows. For work reasons, they were living in Milan before I came along. And so my two older brothers, one is a Milan fan and one is an Inter fan. And so when the time came in the mid 70s, when I had to pick a team, the only team that really could match those two northern powerhouses was their enemy, Juve. And so that's who I picked. There was nobody in my family who was either a Lazio or a Roma fan uh, that I remembered. And so I picked Juve, not knowing much really, except that I wanted to upstage my older brothers. And then we went to this match, uh, a very important match, last game of the season, of the 75-76 season in Perugia, where my dad had some... Uh, business dealings and uh, one of his friends there had gotten him tickets last game of the season Juve was a 
Torino, our crosstown rivals. And so the title was on the line, essentially. Torino was playing at home against Genoa, if I'm not mistaken. And Juve had to win. Remember, back then, a victory was worth two points, not three. Um, and Juve had to win in order and, and hope that Genoa would hold off Torino. And maybe we could get to the playoff. Because in Italy, if you're tied, unlike in England, there's no goal differential that sorts out the, the title race. Still today, if the two teams are tied, I believe, uh, they still go to the playoff. Uh, as it turns out, Torino and Genoa did draw 1-1, but in a catastrophic turn of events, uh, Renato Curi of Perugia scored what turned out to be the only goal of the game, and uh, Perugia beat us 1-0. And so my first live Juve match uh, couldn't have been worse, frankly. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was not tears of joy that uh, cemented that marriage. And uh, yeah, so that was the beginning. You know, I, I my relationship with Juventus started with uh, something very, very painful. And uh, not, not with a, a victory that made me leap onto the bandwagon. I think that was good for me in a sense. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly humbling for sure, you know, and you get to experience what, it is the agony of defeat for sure. But as you described too, is that it wasn't something that was, you know, so uh, victorious. It wasn't something to celebrate, you know, but you've managed to also then take your love of culture and then use that as a tool to guide you through your entire career, which not many people can say that. So again, like walk me now through how, you're growing up in Rome. You become a Juve fan, as you explained, to stick it to your two older brothers, which is phenomenal. And then that brings you to Africa. And there and there you are. And now you're a professor doing, th showing how the game is a microcosm of how we are as a society. So exp how, like, how does this all connect based on the love of the game here? And how does this journey go? I think the journey really has to do with that critical time in one's life when you're starting to figure out a little bit more about the world that you have come to inhabit and try to figure out a place in it. And, you know, Rome is more than 2,700 years old. So without knowing it, you know, I grew up with history all around me you know the, the the multiple levels of the city you know when you're waiting at a bus stop uh for example or riding your bike you know you see the layers of history you imbibe in them even without being conscious of it in a sense and um a couple of things uh, started to happen to me the first is that like many other football fans you know i marked important moments in my life with football matches or events. So for my first communion, for instance, my parents kindly asked me, you know, what would you like as a gift? And I immediately looked at the Serie A calendar and I said, well, as it happens on April 30th, the day of my first communion, uh, Roma Juve is going on at the Olympic Stadium. Would you mind getting me a ticket to that? And my mom and dad were horrified, of course. And they said, well, let's see what we can do. Uh, as it turns out, uh, I was able to go to that match in my communion, you know, suit, my brown suit and tie as a Juve fan, mind you. And uh, we celebrated our 18th 
Scudetto, our 18th title that day, a 1-1 draw with, with Roma. And so for me, you know, the first communion used to get into the grounds uh, and see history uh, happen in front of me. So again, you know, it's this idea that your major life events uh, become almost inextricably linked to the game that started to really, I think, ingrain in me this idea that, you know, football is inseparable from our life journeys. And then four years later, something perhaps even more remarkable happened, which is at the age of 12, when you're very impressionable and when I think you're also, how to put this, um, more open to being transformed by the game in ways that, you know, as you become older and perhaps more experienced and, and also cynical, <laughs> you're less likely to be. Uh, Italy won the World Cup. And, you know, these were tough times in Italy. These were the years of lead. Uh, that is a, a period in which extreme right wing and extreme left wing groups, terrorist groups, uh, were extremely active. Uh, indeed, in 1978, you may remember the uh, former prime minister, Aldo Moro, uh, head of the Christian Democratic Party, was kidnapped yep. Yep. Uh, by the Red Brigades. And uh, as it turns out, he was held in the building next to my elementary school without us knowing it uh, for several days. And when when I showed up one day uh, for school, there were literally hundreds and hundreds of paramilitary police uh, vehicles. And what the heck is going on here and of course my first thought was are we going to be able to play our, our usual soccer game um and it, and it, you know they murdered him the red brigades eventually murdered aldo moro and they left him by the uh party headquarters of the uh, communist party to send a signal that uh, the red brigades didn't want the christian democrats and the and the communist party to work out any kind of negotiated deal or power sharing arrangement uh my brothers in high school pretty regularly came home with uh you know school was canceled due to a bomb scare i mean th this was a reality in italy in the 70s and, and up through the mid 80s and so winning the world cup in 1982 was an incredible celebration of italianness it was a, a an extraordinarily rare occasion when left right center north and south men women old and young came together in the most unlikely of circumstances as the team started so poorly, right. we, we didn't even win a single game in the group stage. We only got through, not even on goal difference, but on goal scored, uh, eliminating Cameroon. And then, of course, that amazing progression happened, beating Argentina, beating Brazil, uh, then Poland, and then overcoming West Germany in the final. And, uh, you know, I was at my uncle's house watching that game in the Marque region, and he was a parish priest, incidentally. Uh, and, you know, I made him drive with my friend Fabio all the way to the center of town. We honked the horn of the car, his little Fiat, you know, for like 10 kilometers from the hills into the main square. And there, there was a massive carnival going on, people going nuts. You know, there were old ladies jumping into the fountain in the main square in, in Pesaro. And you realize, my goodness, you know, football can really elevate people into this kind of almost, you know, um, uh, how to put this, uh, you know, almost almost nirvana like, you know, state. And as a 12 year old, you know, that that never goes away. That never no. goes away. And so that's how I think I realized that, look, you know, football can be a way 
to understand people, to understand societies. And, you know, I wouldn't really come to understand that uh, much until, you know, I went to the United States in the mid 1980s. Uh, and you asked about South Africa and, and Africa. I mean, really, my interest in South Africa was, was originally a political one, mm -hmm. because when my mom and I uh, moved to the uh, U.S., I found myself in New Haven, Connecticut, where the best pizza in America is uh, baked. And, um, you know, the students at Yale University were very active in the anti-apartheid movement, along with staff members, community members. It was is a really diverse movement. And they had built um, shacks on part of the campus uh, at, at Yale. And what they were trying to do was get the Yale University Board of Trustees to divest uh, their investments from South Africa, essentially mm -hmm. right. saying, you know, we don't want the blood money of apartheid to fund our education. And I you know, as a teenager, young teenager, uh, was impressed by this because, you know, you see things very much in simple terms as a teenager, right and wrong, literally in the South African case, black and white. Mm -hmm. And this was something that to me was the great moral issue of our time. And so, you know, I superficially uh, supported the movement against apartheid and had anti-apartheid stickers on my car and posters and yelled slogans. You know, they're the kinds of things you can do as a, as a 15, 16, 17 year old. Um, but then I realized I was still very ignorant about uh, South Africa and Africa as a whole. And so when I went to college, uh, I really steeped myself in history and anthropology, uh, political science, uh, very much with Africa at the center. And that's when I realized, you know, I, I've read a lot. I think I know a lot in terms of book knowledge, but I need to go to South Africa for myself. Yeah. And, you know, this was still at the time when apartheid was dying, but was not dead. Right. It was in this almost zombie-like state. Uh, Mandela was released in early 1990. And right after I graduated in 92, I went to South Africa to work in a kind of sporting version of the Peace Corps. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was a physical education teacher and uh, soccer coach uh, in a township outside of Cape Town called Kailicha. And it was for me a way to really have my eyes opened in a new and much more powerful way uh, by folks who had struggled all their life really to get their civil rights and their human rights uh, recognized and they fought very hard for it and uh, that's when the intersections between soccer politics uh, and africa uh, started really becoming uh, an important element of my life this to me is just I'm I, I'm speechless always hearing your story. I know we've spoken many times about it, but it's it's still so fascinating to me because you know when you were in the Rainbow Nation at a time, as you said, it was apartheid was in a zombie-like state. Mandela hadn't officially been elected yet, despite the fact that he was still going on television to urge for calm. There was a lot of riots going on in townships across the country, uh, namely in Soweto. Uh, what was it like being there like when so you're in Kailisha now to put it in perspective for those that don't know Kailisha is a township outside of Cape Town it is one of the largest in the country and so you're there and you're seeing something that most news cameras never went to so what was that like for you and what was the reception like oh it was a powerful experience and an incredible learning experience for me I mean 
being a white person was something that I only became aware of, honestly, when I came to the United States. Hmm. Because living in New Haven and living in the city, which is a primarily black city, black and brown city, you know, you suddenly realized what is going on here? You know, this is such a diverse place. And, and how do I fit into it? And um, when I got to uh, South Africa, I was in a living in a university neighborhood near the University of Cape Town, which was, you know, by South African standards, more diverse than many uh, other communities because it had started to desegregate unofficially already in the 1980s. And, you know, university neighborhoods tend to be more cosmopolitan and more bohemian. Uh, You know, usually university neighborhoods can smell the cops from from miles away. And um, but Kailicha was, you know, created in the 1980s by the apartheid government as a black township. Uh, We would say a a slum, a a barrio, if you want to use a a Latin American term, perhaps. And um, as a white person, you know, you immediately were confronted with the fact that you, you know, had nowhere to hide. And uh, and that was okay. I mean, you know, it's 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 about also learning, you know, to be yourself, but also appreciating the fact that most of the world isn't white. Right. (laughs) And uh, and I think, you know, there's there's something very fundamental there, you know, and also being humble. I think it was important for me, even as a as a young, you know, middle class white person from the global north uh, to attempt to speak Prosa. Mm-hmm. which I had a very rudimentary uh, uh, knowledge of, but I was always eager to to learn um, and teaching people Italian, for example. So also making sure folks knew I wasn't a white South African, which at the time I wanted to avoid <laughs> that perception right. as much as possible, because most white people in the township were either linked to the government uh, as municipal administrators and the like, or they were soldiers and cops. And you can imagine that that was not a particularly, you know, friendly <laughs> kind of uh, relationship that people had. So, uh, yeah, you know, and 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 uh, after a while, I stopped thinking of myself uh, in really these kind of crude racial terms because people really were very generous and welcoming. And to me, that was really a beautiful feeling, you know, that it really didn't matter who, right. where, what I looked like uh, or anything like that. It was that I was, you know, willing to engage people on their own terms in their own communities. And, you know, when you're teaching elementary school kids, you know, families are trusting you with their children. That is a very big commitment that they're making. And I always respected that a great deal. You know, for me, it was like I always tried to think, you know, what if the situation was reversed? You know, what if I were a parent and this person came into my community? So I always made a point of, you know, asking uh, people how their uh, relatives were doing, you know, if there was anything wrong at home or something important that happened. And, you know, within a month or two, um, it was really amazing what what kind of relationships uh, were built. And it showed me more than anything else how stupid apartheid was right not just how hateful it was that's that's quite clear but how stupid how idiotic it was and how these these this awful racial discrimination and segregation was really um corrosive on 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 an elemental level and you know and again it, it just from that alone you know it also just shows you know what the kids, the kids, I mean, the students at Yale were doing what you were doing. You know, it was 
at a moment in time before Mandela's release, it, you know, it's it's almost as if that this was the the call to arms, if you will, to make sure that this would never happen again. And and that you know, and it, and it's and in the 1980s, it seems to have come to an head. Whereas you know, apartheid is created in 1948, but it really you know, it's almost like 30, 35 years into it where the world tends to wake up and say, "Hey, you know what? This is this is pretty bad." But knowing that there were generations of people that were affected so terribly by this and by this disgusting, disgusting regime that had been in power for far too long, you know, you being an outsider, did it, did you feel it like you were making progress to what the future could be and show people from black, white, whoever, that this is how, like us hanging out and getting along and just kicking a ball around, something as simple as that? is actually not this grand utopian nirvana idea. It is, it's just basic civility. At the time, I thought I was making a difference in a couple of different ways. One is that the physical education programs uh, in black schools were really very basic. Uh, so much so that they did not have the capacity staff-wise and resource-wise to run after-school sports, for instance, or regular physical education classes during the week. So I thought that was a contribution I was making in a very small, localized way, you know, that at least for the period I was there, these particular young kids, boys and girls, uh, would have access to physical education at least once a week during their school day. And then, you know, we had soccer, we had basketball, we had netball, which is a kind of basketball played in the British Commonwealth for girls. Uh, we played um, even softball and baseball, which were really <laughs> interesting uh, to teach. The force play in Klosa was really, really complicated uh, for, for someone who spoke so poorly like me. Uh, and then cricket, which is a sport that I came to, in fact, enjoy a, a, a surprising amount. Um, so in that sense, I thought I was making a contribution, but clearly in the big picture, I mean, I was making no difference uh, at all. And it was in fact this frustration, for lack of a better term, that moved me to think beyond what I was doing in the moment. And so I went to the National Library uh, right next to Parliament in Cape Town and looked around to see if there had been any books published on the history and culture of black soccer, black football in South Africa. And to my astonishment, I discovered that there have been no academic books written on the subject. And I thought, imagine if you walked into your public library in any U.S. town about baseball. Mm -hmm. That would be a crime against Americana. <laughs> You know, given how important baseball is to understanding this country of the, of the USA, you know, at least until recently. And I thought maybe this is a contribution I can make when I return to the U.S. And that is to write uh, first a, a, a graduate dissertation, a Ph.D. dissertation, then hopefully a book about the role of football in black communities as a way to cope with adversity, survive this evil system of apartheid, but also to resist and create an alternative uh, to, uh, to apartheid. And so uh, that's kind of how the seed was planted. Wow. You know, you've traveled around the world 
teaching this game, writing about this game, learning about this game, watching this game, playing this game, you know, what impact has it had on you witnessing people from all walks of life enjoy the exact same thing? Does it show that, you know, the idea is that we're actually a lot more alike than we are different? Soccer is kind of who I am for good or ill. <laughs> it is one of those rare things like music that really brings out our humanity in, in a beautiful and usually positive, constructive, interconnected way. I guess for people who are deeply religious, maybe religion can do that, but there's so many different <laughs> forms of religion that sometimes it's hard to get that commonality um, uh, to express itself. You know, so I think football in, and music are the two things that really can bring humanity together and, and try and build a better future and to find a way to coexist despite all our tensions and, and conflicts and differences. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm so glad that the game has been uh, part of my life, but also, you know, I'm, I'm not a romantic, even though I sound like it in the sense that I've also seen some pretty awful things at football matches. Of course, yeah. And that's also life. You know, life is um, the sadness and the joy. It's uh, the violence and the peace. It's the unity and the division all intertwined. It, that way for everybody it has always been that way and it will always be that way and so the game keeps you humble too you know that's one of the things that's so magical about it when you think you figured it out you know something happens to slap you in the back of the head and tell you you know uh you got to be on your toes keep your eyes open because you never know you know where that that career ending tackle might come from uh or where that you know, band of hooligans is going to come around the corner and um, and make you run for your life. Right. So, you know, like the great Uruguayan uh, bard Eduardo Galeano put it, you know, it's it's soccer in sun and shadow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the best books ever written on the game. Um, you know, your books, La Duma and the history of South African soccer, which is the one that came on my honeymoon, uh, focus on the game in South Africa. But have you ever considered doing something about the sport in another African nation? Oh, I have. I mean, I've, I took one stab at it with uh, African soccer scapes uh, that, that looked at continental trends. But, you know, one would have to spend uh, multiple lives, you know, trying to do a... Uh, uh, an adequate job of country uh, in this massive continent of 2,100 languages, 54 nations, a billion and a half people properly. Right. And, um, you know, I, it might happen. It might happen. Uh, it could be in Southern Africa or it could be in West Africa. I'll be going to Ghana next year for a big nice. conference. I'm, I'm quite interested uh, in the connections between, uh, for example, Ghana and the Confederation of African uh, Ghana has played an outsized role in the history of the African game. So that I think there's some interesting connections there. Um, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, we'll have to see. I, I'm the kind of researcher that usually follows the evidence. And right. so I'm not very good at planning 
the way that maybe some journalists uh, are much better at, you know, saying, okay, I'm going to go to this country and I'm going to, you know, report on this event or, or write this biography. Um, I'm kind of moved by uh, some extraordinary account or event. And then I go and, and try to dig deeper into that. Uh, I'm also becoming more interested in uh, football biographies. And so uh, I'm starting to work on a, a, a project with a, a colleague originally from Benin, uh, trying to work on a biography of Paul Bonga Bonga, who was one of the earliest uh, African professional players in Europe in the wow. late 50s, early 1960s. And he was from the Congo, from what is today the Democratic Republic of Congo. And he played for uh, Standard Liège in Belgium and was voted in the uh, top 11 uh, in uh, Europe by World Soccer Magazine in 1962. And nobody really knows much about him, but he's still alive. And he's even written a self-published uh, memoir in French. Uh, and so my co-conspirator, Gerard de Kindes, um, has interviewed him because uh, of the facilitation of, of uh, Mr. Bonga Bonga's son. And so we are uh, strongly considering doing a proper kind of academic history, uh, biography, excuse me, of Paul Bonga Bonga. So I guess that would qualify as doing work in a different yeah. country, Be, you know, a Congolese Belgian. Yeah, I mean. Pre-Lukaku. Pre, oh, yeah, <laughs> well, that. that Pre-Vincent Company. Right. Right. I mean, father's from the Congo. Too. You're right. Yeah. I mean, you're blowing my mind right now because also, you know, that also then tells the modern history of that region through this player, through through Mr. Bunga Bunga himself, which is unbelievable. Wow. I mean, I do hope you get look, I'm, I'm going to endorse the project now. So I'm just I want to put that out there. Uh, would love to read it and check it out. I'm actually quite surprised that you haven't written a book on Juve, you know, what is there is there like because i don't know if i would ever write one on Milan. you know no, sometimes no, it's like no 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 i i could never write a book on you not as an academic no i'm i am completely unable to have any kind of objectivity that's yeah. or de, or detachment now if i were to write a, a memoir of sorts um you know that might be different that might be different but not as an academic i mean it, it's too close to the heart. Yeah. You know, there, there's too much emotion, too much of my life wrapped up in this in this club. I get it. I get it. I mean, I've I've grappled with that idea too. You know, I could write articles on Milan. I don't know if I can go a full distance on a on a book or any sort of like, you know, anthology work because of that same reason. It just it just means too much, despite the fact that it is a passion. Um you know, maybe what we can do is I'll write the Juve book and you write the Milan book. We'll see how much we dislike each other's squads. And, uh, you know, we can compare that way. That um, sounds like a good idea. We got a book <laughs> series underway. That's it. That's it. The team I dislike the most. Here we go. And then that's the series. Uh, you know, Juve, since returning to City A after the infamous Chapoli scandal, it seems as if they've done everything right in Italy. And they have became the model for other Italian clubs, new stadium, getting players on a free transfer, not spending too much on wages, but getting quality players as well as quality managers. What happened this past season under Allegri's return all seemed to throw that idea out the window. What is it that 
happened with Juve this past year and what do you see foresee for the next season? The fact that they're keeping Allegri uh, when they let Pirlo go for far less, really, you know, at this point. Well, Juventus is, uh, has really been struggling with a kind of overall strategy uh, since really the uh, 2017 Champions League final loss to Real Madrid. Mm-hmm. A 4-1 hiding uh, after it was a 1-1 match at halftime and uh you know, probably the worst second 45 minutes uh, uh, Juventus produced in over the course of a decade. And so, you know, Allegri was already, I think, in a different place after that match, even though he stuck around for a couple more seasons. He had a, a big blow up, in fact, with Bonucci uh, right. in the dressing room Uh in Cardiff at that uh, Champions League final. And I think the trust, the reciprocity, maybe the shared belief of that team uh, was no longer there after that. And so there was a mistake there to stick with a team that had won multiple titles and had played two of the last three Champions League finals um, instead of pursuing a strategy of renewal. And so Allegri stuck around and Marotta, the the, uh, DG, basically left. And the old guard got older and there was no new blood really that came in to significantly enhance the squad. And so the solution to this was let Allegri go after yet another title, the ninth consecutive title, um, in fairly fortunate circumstances, let's be honest, and bring in, of all people, Sarri. Probably the most uh, uh, non-Juve coach from a personality and and sort of style standpoint. And, you know, for Juve, style matters. Right. You know, sobriety, professionalism, discipline. The look, Uh, you know, Agnelli, the watch over your shirt. You know, it's all about creating, you know, this aura of like, if you want to look the best or be the best, you got to look the best. Correct. And here was Sarri who did not did not wear a suit ever right he always showed up like he had just finished uh, his uh, shift at the mill um and you know you're not allowed to smoke anymore on the sidelines in italy uh, that only changed a few years ago but he made sure he brought a uh, a cigarette butt with him which he could be seen chomping on on the on the sideline and then he would pick his nose in the conference uh, press conferences i mean he just did not have the uv look but on a more substantive note this great dynamic football that sarri was supposed to be creating we never saw it really with a couple of exceptions now he won the title again um i think that was the ninth actually the ninth consecutive title so allegri had won the eighth consecutive title um and they let him go again you know well what are you going to do now they were going for a big time manager instead they settled for somebody who had not even ever coached an under 12 game andrea pirlo so a gamble i was in favor of that gamble even though i knew that pirlo would not win the serie in all likelihood on his in his first coaching job and he won the italian super cup he won the coppa italia uh, managed to sneak into the fourth place for the Champions League qualification, 
you know, thanks to a miraculous performance by Verona in Naples on the last day of the season. And I thought, well, you know, he's made his mistakes as a rookie coach. The second year will be better. And their management again came in and decided, you know, that we needed the restoration of the great Max Allegri. And I thought, you know, this is a this is really a rudderless ship at this point. They keep changing managers. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what kind of team they want to put together. The old guard seems to be running the show from the dressing room. And sure enough, Allegri came in and Allegri had been out for two years. And football has changed, has changed since that arguably uh, peak of Allegri's football in 2016, 2017. And I feel like he hasn't been paying attention because he, he has he has continued to play this completely flaccid, you know, hyper defensivist football that doesn't work anymore. Yes, you can luck out certain times with, you know, the superstars on your side who make the difference. Um, but in the big scheme of things, the quality of the football is dreadful. And, you know, we've had many injuries which have complicated things. Chiesa with the, with the terrible ACL um, injury and, and many others. But Allegri really, I think, is just completely lacking in uh, intellectual dynamism. He is stuck in his way. His teams are always going to play this dire football. And it really doesn't matter who we're going to have. In fact, he got the gift of the uh, leading scorer in Serie A in January, during the January transfer window, Vlahovic from, from Fiorentina. And he almost managed to, to destroy him. Vlakovic managed to score six, seven, eight goals. I can't remember the exact number. Uh, but uh, Allegri, first thing he did is he told him he, he was young and uh, he needed to learn and, you know, his touch wasn't really there and this and that. Okay, those are legitimate criticisms of a 22-year-old. But that's not the kind of mentorship that your golden striker you know, needs to receive. Who also, mind you, turned down bigger offers at other clubs because he wanted Juve. He wanted that team. I remember when he signed, you had sent me a text saying how ex- I, I was thrilled for you. I was I was sweating going like, well, there goes our season because this kid's going to score about a thousand goals. Um, and, you know, here comes Juve and they will probably go first to second place. And as you point out, it didn't happen, you know, but a lot of the things that you're talking about, uh, Carlo Garganesi, who was on season two of Curva Mundial and is the co-host of the Italian football podcast, he talks about how Allegri is a dinosaur. And for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned, one thing, though, that if you watch the Netflix series uh, about on Juve that was come, came out in 2021, there's a scene where you see when Ronaldo, you know, when Ronaldo has officially tuned out, he's, he's left the team. It's in the champions league. They've gotten embarrassed again. And you can see like, he's not in this anymore. Knowing that he stuck around all last summer. And then towards the end of that transfer window, it wasn't until they sacked Pulo and then hired Allegri. Does Ronaldo say, okay, that's it. I'm gone. Do you think that, Allegri played a role in Ronaldo leaving. And do you think that because of Allegri in his very archaic ways, as you mentioned, because the game has changed so much in the sabbatical that he took, you know, he turned down Real Madrid. He turned down Real Madrid in the summer of 2021 um, to come back to Juve. 
which, you know, I'm sure Madrid fans and Ancelotti are all very much going like, thank you Absolutely. for turning that job down. Thank you for turning that job down. Uh, but he wanted the return to Juve. Juve wanted him. This, you know, caustic relationship has rekindled again. But now, you know, do you think that he now becomes a hindrance in attracting other talent? You know, as you said, you pointed out the thing. And look, this is not just opinion on what happened to Vlaovic. It is fact. You saw how many more goals he scored at Fiorentina with a lesser team, if you will. And you're at Juventus now. It's supposed to be better midfielders, better players. Yes, Chiesa's injury was super unfortunate. And we've seen Chiesa explode at Juve to the player that we've all wanted to see. Um, I hope he gets back to, you know, just for the good of Italian football, that he gets back to the form he was. But, you know, a manager plays a role in who the team gets. What do you think? In terms of the Ronaldo case, I don't know the answer to why Ronaldo left and why he waited till, what, four days before the end of the summer transfer window to leave. Uh, I don't think Ronaldo liked Allegri's football. But I also think that Ronaldo probably saw that Juve really was in a in a kind of stasis, and uh, unfortunately for him, he went to Manchester United, Which and it was a lateral move at this point, and and it didn't work out for him, and they didn't even make the Champions League at the end of the season. But I think you are right to say that the image that Allegri projects nationally and internationally is not one that elicits enthusiasm or excitement or desire to join this club. Uh, look at De Ligt, for instance. I hold De Ligt in very high regard. This is a yeah. guy who captained Ajax as a 19-year-old. Right. In fact, he eliminated Juventus right. in 2019, I think it was, uh, in the uh, Champions League. You know, incredible charisma. A defender who, for his age, is incredibly mature. Uh, of course, makes makes mistakes now and again, like everybody else, but a true leader in, in, in the real sense of the word and somebody you can build a team around. And, you know, recently he's been issuing some statements that suggest that, you know, he might be willing to entertain offers uh, from other clubs, uh, which is why he has asked that for his renewal of his contract, uh, the escape clause be reduced because apparently Juve I think it's over 120 million euro so Delict would like to renew but bring that escape clause uh, figure down and I think it does have to do with how he sees Allegri's football and his role within it and I mean Delict is a superstar uh, if you want to improve, they need him there. They need to build that central spine. And who better than Delict, especially now that Chiellini uh, has retired from Juve, might end up in MLS at LA for a season or two, but he's done. And Bonucci is clearly past his prime. Uh, yes, he can still contribute and probably will for a couple of years, but you cannot rely on Bonucci for 50, 60 games a year. Right. So, you know, how do I you mean, attract? I couldn't even rely on him for a season. So let alone, you know, going back to Juve. Good point. Good point. So you do. I would like to see Juve with a manager who plays a much more dynamic uh, kind of football. 
I still want to see results. I'm not one of these folks who, you know, has this very idealistic view that you you need to play this airy uh, kind of football, um, whether it's the Guardiola style or whether it's the Klopp style or what have you, you know, or, or similar type of kind of postmodern coaches. Um, I do like results to go along with the quality of play, but I also need a reason to really engage with the team on a regular basis. And Allegri gives you no reasons except your loyalty, your fealty. (laughs) The fact that, that we can't change our club, you know, it's like your family, you can't change it. You're stuck with it. Uh, And if it's a dysfunctional family, well, dealt with in a sense you know you you can't become a Milan fan uh, in middle age Um, so yeah I'd like to see a different kind of manager someone for example like the Zerbi uh, or even a foreign manager you know why not try and get uh, Zidane for instance back where he belongs you know I I do feel that if if Zidane does not take the PSG job in the near future, I think Juventus would be his best spot. I mean, why not? You know, it would make the most sense. And I, and there's a guy who will attract players. He will attract folks that'll want to play. Like, Oh, I, I know, look at what he wanted Madrid. Like this is of course I want to play for him. Um, and just look at who he is as a player. Even if, even if the rest of the team may be so, so, I mean, you're talking about one of the greatest players of all time. So, you know, why not learn from that? You know, it is, um, it is interesting, though, that whenever Juventus stumbles, it parallels the Azzurri and their stumbles. I didn't want to bring it up, but I got to bring it up. We're in a World Cup year, and we talked about it off camera that we're not going to the World Cup again this year. You know, is, is there a connection there, or is, it, or is it just happen to be coincidence? Look, as a journalist, I know there's never supposed to be any sort of coincidence, but it's kind of seems to be the writing on the wall more oftentimes than it is. The problem with the Italian na- men's national team is partly related to Juve. Uh, the problem with the Italian national team is that it has kept aging players on too long. Mm-hmm. Not an uncommon problem. Uh, we've seen it before. Uh, think of France, for instance, um, you know, the great team of the of the 98-2000 cycle that hung around for too long, for instance. Um, you know, it's ha- happened to Germany. It's happened to Argentina. That's not an uncommon problem. But in Italy, because it's a gerontocratic society ruled by the elders still today, uh, when it translates onto the playing field, you can't go onto the international stage with players well past their prime, too many of them at least. Uh, the other problem, of course, is management. And I mean, the administration of, of Italian football at the, at the you know, National Federation level, I think is dismal. Uh, think of the coach who was put in charge of the 2018 campaign. Uh, Ventura. Ventura is a coach that you might want to pick if you want to avoid relegation. <laughs> Uh, or maybe if you're in Serie B and you think, you know, I got to play 46 matches and somehow, you know, finagle my way to the playoffs and then through the back door, get the Serie A. Yeah, you might get, you might want to have Ventura. Ventura, I think, had had uh, maybe a couple of games uh, in Europe with Torino at some point. I remember this scene distinctly. And I think it was the return match when it was clear that we needed to score. Right. 
he turns to De Rossi on the bench (laughs) and tells him to warm up. And De Rossi looks at him. And by this time, De Rossi is well into his 30s. And he basically tells him to buzz off. Right. Like you're trying to put me on? You need a like, strike. What would I do? What yeah. would I what could I possibly do to change the the score right now? And he literally turned the coach down. And you imagine the sign that that gives to the rest of the team when a veteran World Cup winner like De Rossi basically gives you the middle finger and 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 says, I'm the wrong man. He you know what's funny is is that the prelude to all of that was after Ventura gets appointed, it was after Conte's magical run in the summer of 2016 at the Euros with a, a squad that when, uh, yeah, when Zaza is your, you know, bandiera player, right? That, that's kind of, you know, and he's your focal point in terms of strikers. That's, you know, obviously kind of a problem to begin with. But, you know, Conte did what Conte does and he galvanizes the team and gets the best out of them. As soon as Conte leaves, the first practice on the Ventura, that first week or so on the Ventura, Graziano Pelle leaves for similar reasons. He leaves the Italy training camp on his own recognizance after he has a blow up with Ventura. And it sort of becomes uh, a foreshadowing of what's going to happen down the line, that these players just all revolted. Now, Graziano Pella was a fantastic player, and at that point in his career, was on the decline. He was going to China to go play for major bucks. But the fact that Pella saw that early on, and then you have De Rossi doing it at the beginning of Ventura's tenure, and then De Rossi does it at the end, that just explains everything. That there clearly was no dynamic, there was no chemistry, there was nothing going on. And you saw, like, the, in summer 2021... At the Euros, Italy was nothing but chemistry and character. Unfortunately, that couldn't get carried over to a World Cup qualifier. And again, it goes back to what you had touched on, older players. You know, was it wrong for Mancini to not change it up? Of course, in retrospect, there's an easy answer to that. (laughs) Yes. In a sense, that magical run in 2021 you know, allowed the Italian Federation and the whole really elite cultural movement to sweep the problems under the rug, you know. Um, And after all, you know, we have a tendency as fans to be inebriated by these triumphs because, you know, they relied on a fantastic stretch of performances by Chiellini and Bonucci, both in their mid-30s, by an aging Insigne who had a very good tournament, uh, and on and on. And, you know, a fair amount of luck. We tend to forget that, you know, Italy didn't play particularly well against Spain in the semifinal. Um, You know, Spain dominated that game for long, long stretches. And in fact, you know, Morata's goal, he just waltzed right through the heart of our defense. Um, Similarly, you know, we would have been eliminated against Austria had it not been for VAR uh, that uh, called back a goal that was maybe an inch or two offsides late in regulation by Arnautovic. Uh, And then in the final, of course, England missing three penalties. Uh, so, you know, it was fantastic, but I think it distracted us from the problem. And that is that the Juve block clearly w- was was past its prime. And uh, we needed to start fielding younger players much earlier. 
And uh, I think Mancini realizes uh, this now. If you look at the lineups in the most recent matches since our uh, abominable performance in the, in the last few games of the World Cup qualifiers, he has thrown in a bunch of youngsters. Yeah. Uh, and, and um, you know, I think in part he's trying to cover his behind because he has been criticized for relying too much on, on the old guard. Uh, but I think also, you know, there's a realization that the results haven't borne out. And so he needs to move on and, and try testing some new players. And uh, let's hope that this new guard can deliver. Uh, I see some really strong players uh, that are coming up. But again, you know, in Italy, it's very tough for young players to make it. There's a lot of pressure, a lot of criticism on a regular basis. As soon as you make a mistake, everybody is on you. Uh, it's not like Germany. It's not like France. It's not like England. Uh, it's, it's much tougher in that respect. And that is, you know, a cultural problem, if you will, that goes hand in hand with our ongoing tendency uh, to fear the unexpected to the point that we, you know, uh, whenever things get uh, tough, we tend to retreat. We move back 30 meters and sometimes even park the bus. And that's when we get into trouble. You know, you nailed it as unsurprising uh, on that because, you know, Italy reminds me of whenever there's a young player, a good young rising star, the media just immediately jumps on them to the point of obsession that they almost want to destroy this player's career before it's even taken off. You know, we've, we saw it with Patrick Cortone, whose career has taken a nosedive since being sold to Wolves from Milan. Uh, luckily, Chiesa is too headstrong for any of this, that Chiesa has not succumbed to that, but it happened with Balotelli. It happened with... Um, it, you know, it, it happened with Locatelli after he left uh, Milan and went to Sassuolo. He, real, he reinvented himself at Sassuolo, now at Juve. Um, but they obsess, they obsess, they obsess. And there's all these new young kids that are under 20 that, you know, they're immediately hoping that, oh, so-and-so plays in Switzerland. No one's ever heard of him. He's going to sign to Inter. And this person is going to sign to Juve. And this player is going to sign to um Roma or whatever the case may be but again they don't allow these kids to just grow up a little bit and make them as you said like delict he made mistakes but he's young he's going to learn from them he's a natural born leader he's a natural talent that I mean I wish I wish I would have him. you know you want a leader like that as you said 19 years old captaining Ajax one of the most prestigious teams in the history of the game so but the Italian media loves to obsess over the youngsters when they're good. They make them out to be the, oh, we've got the next Messi. And then when they fail, they cannot wait to write about them. It's almost as if they don't. It, it, so if I'm a player, it's sort of just like, I'd rather just be mediocre in this country because you're not going to write about me. Let me surprise you. If I do good, I'll surprise you. If I do bad, you're not going to care. Now, do you think like that mentality kind of goes through a player's head? I think so, especially when you're looking at the kind of wages that Serie A players earn, you know, despite the pandemic and the impact that that has had on football economics. I mean, they're still making millions of euros. <laughs> and so it seems a kind of wise business move in a sense to, to you know, try to try to be just average at that, you know, elite level. And you're pretty you live a pretty comfortable life. 
Uh, so I can see why that could be attractive, but it doesn't do much for the kind of product uh, that we often see on the field. Now, we should also be careful not to overgeneralize here because, sure. you know, there are some interesting changes going on in Serie A. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some managers who have ideas and yes. who are putting forward a different kind of football. Uh, think of, uh, for example, Vincenzo Italiano at Fiorentina, but there are others. You know, they want to play a football that is attractive even to neutrals mm -hmm. who might even endear their teams to enemy fans. And that's really hard to do in Italy because of the nature of our society and our, our hardcore parochialism and the way in which, you know, our, our regionalism and our clan-based loyalties just don't go away easily. You know, it's not like England, for instance, uh, where you've got these global brands, you know, that appeal to people all over the place, not just in a particular city uh, or, or, you know, region. So, yeah, I think there are some interesting um, evolutions that are going on. The American ownership of clubs, for example, you know, a third of Serie A and Serie B clubs are now owned by American interests. I think that has some potential to change or at least alter slightly the, the mentality and the culture um, to look beyond, you know, the dictatorship of results mm -hmm. uh, and try to do something new and different that could move Italian football in a different and hopefully more positive direction. But like everything in Italy, if it happens, it's going to happen slowly. It's going to happen in, in, in bursts and fits and starts, and it's going to be uneven. Now time for a coffee break. Curva Mundial is sponsored by Mod Cup Coffee in Jersey City. But you can get it anywhere in the world from ModCup.com. Mod Cup. Drink modern coffee. Use code MUNDIAL for 10% off your first order. We are now entering my favorite part of the podcast. This is the home stretch. Uh, it's the same three questions I ask everybody. Uh, I, hope you, I hope you prepared and you studied for them. Um, here we go. So question one, if mm -hmm. you could bring back one retired player to your club, former player, alive or dead, who would it be and why? This is a tough one. I, well, I'm with a team like Juventus who has had a plethora, an embarrassment of riches, a plethora of amazing players. It's sort of, I get it. I'm torn between two. Okay. Michel Platini. Oh, yeah. And Roberto Baggio. All right. So for those of you, because this is an audio podcast, you don't see anything. Peter's backdrop right now is a shot of Platini scoring against my Milan. But it's okay. I mean, but again, so the, the Platini fandom is beyond. Um, I, and those are two phenomenal choices and two very different players. Michel, Michel Platini, I'm not sure would survive in today's football. He had the great luxury of having Massimo Bonini do all the running for him. You know, Platini smoked in the dressing room, uh, wasn't much of a, of a training ground type of player, but he had magical technique uh, and a vision on the playing field that uh, is really rare, even at the top level. And he had an unusual position where he scored in buckets, but he wasn't a really a striker. He wasn't a pure midfielder either. And he always delivered in the clutch. 
always. And so, you know, Roberto Baggio, I also saw play and saw him score two of the most incredible goals I've ever seen at the stadium against Czechoslovakia at Italia 90, when he dribbled through half of the Czechoslovakian team and scored. I mean, the roar that we produced that night uh, at the Olympic Stadium, I only heard one other time, and that was when Baggio dribbled around um, the uh, Spanish keeper, Zubizarreta, in Foxborough, at the old Foxborough Stadium, uh, in the dying seconds of the World Cup quarterfinal in 1994, and literally buried the ball in the back of the net to give us the victory. And I was sitting in the front row behind Zubizarreta's goal and could almost reach into the back of the net um, oh to God. grab the ball. And so, you know, there's another guy who you know, really define what's beautiful and what's uh, what's really magical about football. But ultimately, I'll go with Michel Pladini. Wow. Okay. I mean, you know, Baggio was divine, but I, I, get, I get it. I like, I like the arguments made for both um, and the choice, of course. You know, if your club, now pretend money is not an option, infinite amount of cash. If Juventus could sign one player today, who would it be and why? I'm going to go with one of your boys, Sandro Tonali. Yes. Uh, well, no, I don't want him to leave, but yes, <laughs> good choice. Sandro Tonali, I liked him when he was at Brescia. Such a personality. He was in his late teens playing in a really difficult league, like Serie B starting for Brescia. And I didn't buy into the he looks like Pirlo right. argument because when I saw him play, I saw a different player and I liked what I saw. Uh, he's one of the best, if not the best young midfielder in Italy, a kind of box to box player, uh, would really help to solve the biggest problem Juve has right now, which is a weak midfield. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now he's proven it with the goal score that he scored for Milan in the clutch, uh, delivering and, and earning his starting spot in that team, winning the title. And I hope he gets a more permanent presence in the Italian national team. So that's who I would buy Sandro Donali. Wow. I mean, phenomenal choice. He has been, when we signed him, I said, okay, I, I, I'm excited. I liked what I saw at Brescia, but you're right. I agreed with you. I didn't see any of the pure low comparisons. Yes, he was great at passing, but like he was so much more than that. He was tougher. He was, he ran. Pirlo is my favorite player of all time, but the man never ran and he wasn't very tough. So this kid was already immediately different than that. Yes, of course, there was the long hair, maybe the gruff, uh, scruff mustache and uh, beard. But this past season, the Scudetto winning season, he has come into his own. And I would not be surprised if he gets a captain's armband a few years from now. Um, so, yeah. It's a great choice. I don't want him leaving my team. So maybe I might have to cap that. <laughs> I'm, kidding. I'm kidding. No, I mean, look, him and Luca Locatelli would do phenomenal together. They because they would, they would, it would just be a great harmonious midfield. It almost makes me angry that Milan let Locatelli go. So it is what it is. You know, and now finally, what has been your favorite moment as a fan? Again, I'm torn between two moments. The first is 1983, Juventus playing in Rome. Rome, great Rome team with Falcao, Bruno Conti, Roberto Bruzzo, would go on to win the Scudetto that year. And I showed up with my cousin, also a Juve fan, 
and we had our Juve scarves tucked inside our coats because you can't go to the Olympic Stadium in Rome unless you're sitting in the away fan section and reveal your colors. Uh, you may never return home. And Roma scored midway through the second half, and it, that would have been the, the title-winning game, essentially, because we would not have been able to catch up with them. But incredibly, as sometimes happens in football, Juve tied it on a Platini free kick, And then in the dying seconds of all players, Sergio Brio, a kind of six foot five stopper with square feet, uh, managed to head the ball in and we stole the game winning 2-1. And my cousin and I, you know, had to muffle our euphoria and literally ran out of the stadium. And what were we met by? Riot police who fired tear gas into this crowd that we were part of. And of course, you know, being 13 years old, we we're not prepared for this. We tried to uh, cover our eyes and so on. And we get to where the obelisk is behind the Curva Sud. And the woman comes up to us, you know, sees these two teenagers weeping. And she puts her arm around us, this Roma fan, and says, don't worry, guys, we're still first. We're still going to win the title. <laughs> <laughs> and my cousin and I just burst out laughing and waltzed all the way to uh to my aunt's car waiting in the in the traffic hopped in and went home the other moment is the one I hinted at before Baggio's goal against uh Spain in the 94 World Cup in the quarterfinal even better than the semifinal because the game was so exciting um and uh Yeah, that, that was a, a, an orgasmic moment for sure. <laughs> you know, I, I lied. Maybe, maybe I don't have three questions for you. I do have one question, though, and I, and I know you've touched on it. But I think for a generation, there's only one player, I think, that could unite all of Italy for, throughout history, and that is Roberto Baggio. It doesn't matter what team you supported. Everybody loves this guy. And still to this day, the admiration, the joy, the love is still felt. I, I was 10 years old at the 94 World Cup watching it on TV. I mean, I remember Italia 90 like it was yesterday. So that was my first introduction to him. And of course, Toto Schilacci. Uh, those two guys became childhood heroes for mine. Schilacci a little bit more for me because my family's from Palermo. But Baggio was special to watch on TV. I have uncles, you know, I have grandparents that they will, oh, my grandmother now, like everybody will talk about Baggio in the present tense, as if he is still playing. That's how much love he gets. Watching him live, though, must have been an experience that you can't put into words. You've described it as orgasmic, as the goal. But really, like, what was that like just seeing him in person just whenever you could? Well, USA 94 was Baggio at his peak. He had won the Ballon d'Or the previous year. Uh, with Juve, so he was recognized as the best player in Europe. At the time, it wasn't the best player in the world. Remember, Ballon d'Or at the time was was only for players who played in Europe. <clears throat> And, you know, in that month, he, he was battling some injuries, but he just had it. And I would compare it to seeing Michael Jordan play live, which I had the 
enormous privilege so jealous of that. <laughs> uh, once at Madison Square Garden against my beloved Knicks. And what struck me about Jordan sitting up in the rafters in the, in the cheap seats was how he looked like he was at least one second ahead of everybody else. Mm -hmm. And you can't see that on television because television, and this is particularly true of soccer, follows the ball. And the field, of course, is, you know, 110, 120 yards long and 70, 75 yards wide. There's a lot of space there that gets left out of the camera angle, no matter which angle you're looking at. Uh, basketball is more compact, so you're better able to see more of the court, but you still don't see all of the court. And Baggio was like that. You could see his anticipation. Uh, the way he moved off the ball was revelatory. You could see the guy had an instinct, you know, that that was you can't teach that. That's something that you either have or you don't have. And then you need to be able to act on it. And Baggio could and did deliver time and time again in the clutch. Now, people here remember Baggio missing the penalty at the Rose Bowl. But look, anyone who's played football will tell you big time players miss penalties. It's part of the game. Mm -hmm. Ronaldo's missed many penalties. Messi has missed many penalties. Everyone's missed penalties. Um, and remember that in that shootout, Italy had already missed penalties. Right. So, you know, it's not like Baggio was the only guy who missed, like Trezeguet for France in, in 2006, for instance. Right. Or, you know, and so I and think Pons that made it. Luca let penalties in from Yeah, Trezeguet. exactly. And, and, you know, Baggio missing that goal also made him more human in a sense. Mm. You know, he he is what we all are. We are failures. I mean, you know, uh, we we all fail on a regular basis. And as a person who grew up, you know, in a working class family, uh, young, young, I think he was the youngest uh, in his family, certainly of the brothers, you know, a guy who was working in his father's shop until, you know, he was already playing as a professional player. This is a guy who was always humble. He had a strong personality, which didn't mesh well with some of his coaches, but always humble, always loved by his teammates. You know, his Buddhism also made him interesting in a way that a lot of footballers aren't. <laughs> and, and, you know, everybody who looked at him as he fought through those terrible injuries, he had his whole career. I mean, he was threatened, what, four times with career ending injuries and he bounced back every resilience that's a guy who let his passion his commitment his hard work drive him and i think a lot of folks had respect for that he's not a guy who when faced with difficulties folded and he played at an incredibly high level you know into his late 30s uh so much so that you know he he should have been brought to uh, more world cups than he was actually if he had been in korea you know, who knows? Uh, maybe we would have we would have beaten the South Koreans. But <laughs> right, right, right. Treme tremendous player and an even better human being. I, you know, it's it's I'm I'm fortunate to have grown up in that time of both him and Michael Jordan to have watched on TV. But I, I always I will never tire of hearing stories about what it was like here watching both of them, in fact, live. Uh, Peter. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, please pick up copies of his book. If you like the poetry that you heard from him today, his books are available on Amazon. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at football prof. Is it? Um, yep. Underscore football prof football written in the Spanish way. Football. Football. 
trust me, it's a ton of fun, especially his uh, screensavers for when cla- right before class begins. Uh, you you learn a piece of history on on the Bird app where when you're not fighting with someone or if someone's not writing something disgusting and vile, you actually might learn something. And with Peter, you do. Peter, grazie mille. Thank you so much, my friend. Grazie, Sal. Keep up the good work. Love the podcast. Stay strong. Follow us on Twitter at Curva Mundial Pod and subscribe to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.